You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Well, I'm going to sound like a broken record because many of these episodes you've heard me talk about the decline in the number of people giving to charitable organizations. And as I've been saying, we're not sure if this is based on a notion that people are not giving, period. Maybe somehow that their generosity has declined. Um, We don't know that for sure. But we do see this decline over the last 20 some years in the number of people giving to charities. And we are certainly concerned about that because while the amount of money going to charities goes up, the notion that the average person who's working every day, making ends meet at home, managing lots of difficult challenges as you have to in order to manage life, historically, has they've always found a way to give money to charitable organizations. But somehow, over the last 20 years or so, this is declining. And there could be lots of reasons for this. I've talked about what I believe some of them are in previous podcasts. I'm not going to get into that now. But We have with us today two gentlemen who've recently written a book about this, about this giving crisis, this generosity crisis. And their book, in fact, is called The Generosity Crisis, The Case for Radical Connection to Solve Humanity's Greatest Challenges. This book is a call to action, and it's a hope that we can reimagine a more generous future. And the authors, Nathan Chappelle and Brian Crimmins, are with me today. And let me just briefly introduce them, although we're going to talk about their background some. Nathan is the senior vice president at Donor Search, and he leads the AI division, and he helps us predict generosity. He was in the nonprofit sector for 20 years and then left four years ago to take on this important job. So he's in the the tech space, he really kind of helps us use artificial intelligence to better predict where giving is going. And then we have Brian Crimmins. Brian runs a for-profit organization that focuses on helping people find donors and increase generosity. And his organization is called Changing Our World. So we have a consultant, a nonprofit fundraising consultant, 
And we have an AI gentleman here who've gotten together and written a book focused on this generosity crisis that many of us believe we may have. And as I said before, it's hard to know if we're talking about generosity or if we're just talking about giving to nonprofits. But I think we can all agree it's a concern when institutions like nonprofits are not getting the resources that they need from everyday people. It's a concern because we want our nonprofit organizations to operate independently so that they can truly achieve their goals or at least have a chance of succeeding with their missions unfettered by large donors who might have outsized influence over their over what they do. Doesn't mean I'm not thrilled that wealthy people are giving to nonprofits. In fact, I just saw today that one of the wealthiest men in the world, Jeff Bezos, thank you, Mr. Bezos, has decided that he's going to give away all of his wealth in his lifetime. All of his wealth in his lifetime. And believe me, that's not going to be an easy thing to do. But it sends another signal, sends another signal that the wealthy, fortunately, are doing what they need to do. And we want them to continue to do that. But we want them to be joined by everyday people in supporting the causes and the organizations that matter to them. So, gentlemen, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Let's talk about your book. Thanks, Art. Thanks for having us. We love your podcast, and it's great to to be able to spend some time with you today. So you, you wrote this book. What's the impetus for it? Tell us uh, what's in it. Yeah, I mean, the, the book was probably a, a 10-year journey doing exactly what you were just talking about, essentially since 2010, tracking this evolution of mega gifts, and then kind of trying to figure out what was going to happen, whether or not that was going to inspire more generosity from the average person, or if the average person may feel like the bucket's full, so my gifts aren't needed. And Brian and I met each other years ago in the philanthropy space. And over a few a period of a few years, we would sit around and talk about this doesn't end well. Maybe generosity is manifesting itself in other areas, but for the 10 million people that work in nonprofits and the 1.7 or 1.8 million nonprofits, it doesn't help them very much. And so we still believe in that that power of, of traditional philanthropy and it's changing. So, you know, we, we got together, we decided to, to buckle down, write a book that, number one, I think is a call to action. It Many people have not wanted to talk about this subject for, as you know, for a while. It's been kind of a, a pretty unpopular conversation starter for the past few years until about a year or two ago, maybe the pandemic allowed us to be a little bit more open about it. But the first part is a call to action to just inspire conversation. And the second part is to look at the reasons why this is happening and then essentially provide a framework for what we think is a more sustainable way of fundraising. Yeah. And, and our uh, thanks as well for spending some time with you today on the podcast. And I, I love the last few and in, in your introduction here as well. It's Thank you for keeping the conversation going. As Nathan said, this is that's exactly what we were hoping to do when we put our heads together and started writing this book was just to spark conversation because I agree with your frame up. I think there are some who would say we're living in the most 
generous time of our of our lives. But that doesn't translate to the typical nonprofit, as you said, in terms of people giving. There's different ways generosity is manifesting, which is wonderful. But for the not-for-profit community, that it the dollars, the checks, the money coming in, the numbers are staggering, as we talked about before we, we went live. I mean, the current trend uh, downward, as you said, for the last 20 years, Art, has us heading to a point of where 49 years from now, if something doesn't change, just 49 years, philanthropy may cease to exist as we know it. And that's not a good thing for our society. Indeed. Well, what have you discovered in your book that may be, let's say, a leading cause of this? Or more importantly, what are some potential solutions for it? Yeah, I'll get I'll I'll touch on the causes maybe a little bit, Art, and then I'll let Nathan t- some some of the solves that we have for it. I think some of the causes we actually write about a few of them up front. You know, our book is set up in two major ways: one, we frame up the problem, the crisis, and then two, we we write about what to do about it. But I think we're living in a little bit of a perfect storm. You know, you and Nathan were just talking about the age of billionaires committing most of their wealth to to nonprofits, which is wonderful. But we write about whether or not that has had a crowding out effect. Does the average donor feel like, what does my $100 mean when someone's giving $400, $500 million? That's number one. You know, number two, you can't help but write a book like this and see the disassociation of religion, people disassociating with faith groups of all types. It's going down on the same line, trajectory downward that that giving is. And I, I for one, am worried about that because of the the traditional nature of those in faith-based communities being taught to give, being taught to tithe. And if that's not in people's lives, I'm not here to say whether it should or shouldn't be, but if it's not, it who, what's going to replace that? You know, What is the next generation and the one behind that? How will they learn about giving? And then I think we write a fair amount in the book as well about the role of corporates and brands who have in some regard, taken the playbook away from nonprofits about being values-oriented, mission-oriented. And you can buy certain products nowadays and probably get the same visceral reaction that you you would giving to a nonprofit. And again, there's nothing inherently bad about that unless you're trying to balance a budget of a, of a nonprofit. So as I said, there's a bit of a perfect storm of ideas and factors that we think are leading to this, but I'll let Nathan chime in about what we well, see as a possible way out. I'll only add to that too is we spend a, a fair amount of time talking about internal reasons because mm-hmm. nonprofits aren't only the victim in this as well. I spent 20 years in the non- nonprofit sector and our goals every year were revenue. And and almost like when I grew up in the business world of all about shareholder value at any cost, hitting an annual fundraising goal at any cost is not good for donors. And so when you have focus on revenue over relationships, bad things happen over time. And I think that we've treated donors like ATMs, unfortunately, for too long. And I think that that is also part of that decline. So it's not to say that it's only external reasons, but there is there are major societal shifts that have been going on, you know, essentially, if you read Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, since World War II, less people are essentially engaged in things. Nathan, say more about the ATM thing. I mean, I, I think there's a there's some aspects of that that kind of resonate with me. And, you know, we try to help deal with that at the BBBY's Giving Alliance. Mm-hmm. We try to make sure that charities and their appeals are respectful of donor wishes and donor needs. And yet we know that when charities get, when they see something that works, they just double down on it, you know? So if, if the matter is simply send out more letters, when people don't want more letters, they're going to keep doing it because people are responding to the letter. So what, what do you, what do you mean when you say charities may in fact be doing things that 
are harmful or, or sure. that donors don't respect to destroy that relationship. Yeah, our industry, you know, has been fairly unsophisticated in, in the sense of really understanding and motivation. We, we look at revenue, we look at when's the last some, time someone made a gift, how long has it been since they made that gift, and is it time to ask them again? And we tell the story in the book, it's one of the, the hardest things I've ever had to hear working in nonprofit was from an amazing donor who was extremely generous, who said, I mean, he loved our organization, but he came to me and said, why is it the only time I hear from you is when you need more money? Hmm. And man, that just is like a dagger in the heart. And so too often, that's the story, right? From donors, we talk about, we talk about fundraising, especially major gift fundraising, but even in, in, in direct response, we talk about partnership and we, we talk about like, we can't do this alone. We're in it together. We're arm in arm, but then we get the gift and then we forget all about that until the clock ticks and 12 months later goes by and you're like, Hey, we need your partnership and we need to walk arm in arm again. And, and that's a vicious cycle. That's what many people who don't give, that's their fear of why they don't give because they feel like it's, it's not authentic or it's not really needed. And so they're suspicious of that. And so nonprofits have this very unique ability to do those things. If they're willing to really double down on their effort around stewardship and, accountability and authenticity and transparency. And those are things that I think our industry, the nonprofit industry is unfortunately traded in, a, in this idea of removing friction and, and scaling generosity at any means. We've given up some of those opportunities to actually connect with people one-on-one. Well, you know, I'm not going to make an excuse because I, I think a lot of what you're saying is certainly true, but you know, nonprofits are strapped. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to development efforts, people don't want charities spending money on development. So it might be all I can do to get to you once yeah. a year if I'm trying to grow my donor base. And I make a lot of assumptions, perhaps, that if you gave to me once that you're in and you really don't need that nurturing. And even if I wanted to nurture you, even if I wanted to really develop that relationship, it's not easy because I don't have the resources and the time to just devote to every single donor, maybe in the way that they need in order to be nurtured. So, yeah, I mean, I certainly can if I, I certainly can hear, you know, many nonprofits saying that. In fact, some nonprofits are so strapped that they don't even have a development person. They're running around with the executive director or more importantly, what I'm hearing today is that there's a shortage of development professionals. Yeah. People who go out and raise money are in short supply and we're trying to convert people from other fields like sales into becoming development officers because they know what it's like to build relationships with people. Yeah. But again, most of that's going to be focused on relatively large donors and organizations that do Um, And I don't have the data on this. You guys will have more data than me. But if you look at if you look at where the money's coming in right now from larger donors and where it's not coming in from smaller donors, you would get this idea that development offices are spending more of their time and energies and resources bringing in major gifts. They're not nurturing those smaller gifts. So. And it, it makes yeah. sense, right? I mean, if you're if you're leading a development effort in an organization, 
and all of the money is with wealthier people, that's where you're going to spend your time and energy to get get the money. So the incentives are not there internally for going after smaller everyday donors. And somehow we've got to find ways to change the incentives or to give organizations the resources they need to make giving more democratic when it comes to charity. I don't know what you, I'm, I'm writing my own book. Let me let you guys talk. <laughs> well, you definitely hit on something. I mean, having worked in, started out at a boys and girls club 20 plus years ago, I knew the grind and how hard that was starting out by myself. I had people to pay and I was the last one to get paid. So it was uh, it was a hustle and it's, it's such noble work. I, I, you know, throughout my career, I, I feel like the way that nonprofits are measured in terms of the cost per dollar raise is really a, has some really significant downsides to it, right? Because it, it doesn't encourage innovation, at the least of which organizations have a really hard time if you're always just trying to manage under this budget. And I, that's a much bigger conversation. We talk about this in the book quite a bit. I mean, this needs to go to the board, the CEO and the board level, because the metric of success needs to change, right? It should be about relationships that are going to stay with you over periods of time, you know, retention versus just a number, just to hit this number and, and to have your operational costs at a, at a minimum. And, and that's, that's something that's a st- systemic issue that needs to change. So I'd love to talk to you more and maybe a little bit here about that whole fundraising ratio thing, because our organization is one of the ones that track it. We keep track of how much money a charity spends on fundraising. And what we try to do with that is say there's a, a threshold, right? You should not spend more than 35 cents to raise a dollar. And as it turns out, most of the groups we evaluate are able to stay within that. Mm-hmm. Okay. However, in staying within that, are they leaving money on the table? We don't know. Also, in staying with that, are they making choices to support certain types of fundraising over other types of fundraising. And maybe they are. So I guess my question to you is if we were to, if we were to jettison that as a way of measuring fundraising ethics, let's say, because that's kind of how we're looking at it as an, as an accountability thing, what would be a better way or some better approaches or some concepts that we should think about in assessing an organization's ethical behavior when it comes to fundraising? Yeah, it's a great question, Art. I, I talk to our clients a lot about this question, and this is my own opinion on it. You know, your 35% ratio, I think is a good one. I think in, in whatever percentage you want to say, 80% of the time, I think it, it, it's a good metric to keep an eye on and to, to work within, as you described. I've talked to people in the industry, board members, et cetera, that what if you were in a growth mode? You know, what if you spent two years, three years trying to what you said earlier, Art, get get broader, as you said, try different vehicles, ways of raising money. So you're not could there could there be a case in our industry to be made? Well, that's that's ethical, that's logical, particularly if they're it's like any company as well. When there are startup phases, you know, we we allow them to spend uh, you know eighty percent of the money, if not even more. I mean, how many companies like Amazon nowadays weren't even making a profit for many many years, and they proved their their scalability. And I think that some of the, as you, this whole audience that, that you that you have, Art, I mean, it will truly understand. I mean, we're not-for-profits are 
solving society's some of the biggest challenges, right? And, or providing some of the more critical services that if there was a tremendous amount of money to be made in them, it wouldn't be a nonprofit addressing them. It'd be a for-profit. So we, I understand the guardrails. I, I think we need to be a little bit more understanding of the journey of where a nonprofit is to allow some flexibility. And I know there are some risks even in what I'm saying with that, but I think there's some of that needs to be brought into the industry to allow them to expand and grow. I appreciate that. Also, I wanted to ask you, Brian, you, you triggered something in me when you said that most people won't give that 50 or or $100 gift because they don't think it means much. But I wanted to remind our listeners that we did a podcast a few episodes ago with Professor Amit Kumar, who told us that the amount of money that you give means more to the recipient than you think. So if you give even a dollar, the recipient is valuing that a lot more than you think they are. You might think that that dollar only means a one in terms of satisfaction to that recipient, but it actually means a 10 or a seven to the recipient. The recipient is not only considering the value of the dollar itself, but they're also factoring in the warmth that comes from the fact that someone gave it. And what's really interesting is that when people receive those kinds of gifts, they're far more likely to give and support others. So I, I took that to mean that if, if everybody just took a dollar out of their pocket and gave it randomly to someone or some institution. We could solve a lot of America's problems because we would immediately create a more generous, a more compassionate world. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Mm -hmm. Just a dollar, just handing a dollar over to some random person will make them more generous and they'll be giving to others and they'll make that person more generous. So we pass it forward, so to speak. Right. So I wanted, Nathan, you to maybe follow up on that thought a little bit and did you did you come across anything similar in your in your book? I mean, it's such a great segue to really the probably two thirds of our book is really around this idea of connection. And we we had to come up with a new way of of talking about connection because that term is so overused. Affiliation or association or just they don't mean anything, even just regular connection. So we we came up with the term radical connection just to like mean something different. In that study that you're referring to, I remember reading it when it came out and I was just blown away because I'm like, if everyone knew this, you would you would want to give so much more, right? If you knew that that multiple was like five times or 10 times that whatever, that lunch you're going to buy for someone, generosity is is better caught than taught. And this idea that giving to a charity is only one way, it's kind of this like formal you know, manifestation of generosity, but it has to start somewhere. It has to start with a spirit of generosity. And so we spend two thirds of our book really unwinding more modern transactional philanthropy, just give us money and we probably don't tell you how we spent it, to this idea of radical connection where we actually provide a framework in the book for what that means. And without going through this whole laundry list, it means Instead of you knowing me or, or me knowing you, I know you and you know me. And we, we come across this idea in the book that 
your ability to connect in a deep way with an organization or or people around you is probably your most precious commodity. You don't have unlimited empathy to give to every person in the world, but if we stop, if we if we're more conscious about who we're connecting with and we think about which organizations have values that are aligned with my own personal values, then I can go deeper with that organization. And so this idea of radical connection is really more of of this idea that we become a society where we're bombarded with average person gets 333 emails a day and sees between five and 10,000 ad advertisements or ad placements a day. We're overwhelmed. We're overstimulated and we become disassociated with life in a lot of ways. And so like, let's be aware of that. And then let's look for ways to help in, in that are meaningful. And then paradox of generosity is that the more you do, the better you feel. So do more and you are going to feel better and it will spread to those that you pay it forward to. And Art, the only thing I'll add is that your October 11th podcast that triggered this whole, com- this part of the conversation should be required listening for everybody in our sector. I, I mean it. I, I got a chance to listen to it last night. And what is in there to what you just both talked about, if, as Nathan said, you both did, if more people knew it, but I think it's also really important for development directors to think about reframing mm-hmm. the why and they're asking from what that podcast covered. It it should, I hope it has 5 million views in about two weeks because <laughs> it needs to be heard. It's really good. Well, thank you. And uh, I'll pass that on to Professor Kumar also. So, the other side of this for me is, are people not understanding what it means to give to an organization? So we see, we, I see and I love individual action, right? I love the fact that if I see somebody hungry, my wife, no matter where we are, if she sees somebody on the streets, she'll take a few dollars out of her pocket and she'll give it to them. No questions asked, you know, and you know, some, to some extent that runs a little counter to my work, which is to, you know, think a little bit before you give, but Hey, that's how she is. And I'm not going to try to, to get in the way of that. And, you know, hell I've done it myself. You know, I see something and I make a judgment and I throw the wise giving alliance standards out the window. And I just say, I want to help that person. So individual action is good. It's not only good from the standpoint of giving money, but giving time people we see are activists People see things and they want to shed light on it to try to bring change about. But frankly, those kinds of actions are helping those individuals for a time. But we need institutions, once we brought attention to the problems, to actually come up with broader solutions that will take care of many, many more people, right? So... Activists are important. Taking action is important, but we need institutions to go from now we're aware of the problem. Now we know what the solution is to actually implementing those solutions over a broad scale of people and over a long period of time to really see change come about. I think that's the risk we run when we say there's no need to support a nonprofit. We can just do our individual thing, which is fine, but I think we got to think of it in both. We're in it. My futurist friend, Bob Johansson, reminds me that we live in an and world. We can do this and that. We don't have to just do one thing. Mm-hmm. 
And maybe we need to be thinking a little bit more about the organizations that are doing this great work. Many times they don't succeed at it. Okay, we understand. I mean, you may not like it as a donor when your organization doesn't succeed, but they're doing difficult work and they're trying things that maybe others haven't tried before. And that's what you want. Because we know what's going on today isn't working to the extent that it could. So we want these organizations to be exploratory, to be innovative, to try things, to take risks. And that's what your dollars allow them to do. Because ultimately, beyond solving problems, these organizations, I believe, are here to give us all hope that Mm -hmm. someday we can make the world better. We can achieve the objectives of an organization, or we can we can meet the needs of a particular cause. Hope is what we all need, I think, in life. It certainly drives me. Without hope, there's nothing. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and Art, I'll, well, I think it's chapter two, but Nathan can correct me. We, we actually write, I think, piggybacking on your comments there, an entire chapter that is, fu- I fully admit, is a little bit of a dramatization, but of what would happen if nonprofits started shutting their doors, right? And the things we take for granted, the role that they play in society. And so we hit that, the importance of these organizations, as you just said, you said it very, very well. You know, one of the things we point out in the book, though, is that in addition to that, the end comment, I really like what you said, because I'm going to come back to that, because the Edelman Trust Barometer, which is a report that comes out every year, has now put corporations, not the report, people, comment, corporations above government and above nonprofits as the most ethical, trusted, and looked to to solve our problems. And so they've they've taken, as we call it in the book, the moral high ground away, away in some regard from nonprofits. And I think uh, other st- conversations that we hope get sparked by our book is the love of the role of nonprofits and for all the reasons you said. And I want to go back to your friend. There's no reason why we can't have an end. You should be buying from companies who are good citizens and you should be giving to them. It's not an either or. Right. Absolutely. We can do it all. And, you know, our data, the donor trust reports that we put out indicate that people are certainly trusting nonprofits. And in the last year, in fact, the trust has gone up a little bit, which is nice to see. But it's not where it was probably 30 years ago, you know, and we need to figure out how to continue to grow trust because that's also one of the issues. And to that, I say, You know, we look at institutions as though they're these perfect organizations, both charities, nonprofits and businesses as well, government. But they they used to have problems. We just didn't see it. And so we could feel that they were more trusting, right, more trustworthy. But today we can just see everything, every every scale, every sore, every mistake now gets broadcast in social media. There's a lot more transparency from these institutions than there ever was in the world. And so now the problems can't be masked anymore. And so it's no wonder trust has gone down. But what I say to people when they look at those statistics is to remember where would we be without institutions? We got to continue to work to make them better Let's continue to work to make them better. Let's continue to call them out when things aren't the way they should be. 
But let's not be naive in thinking that somehow they're worse today than they were years ago. I don't think that's the case. I think that we see more and seeing is good because that means now we can take action. So don't stop supporting an organization, at least forever. (laughs) Give it a chance to fix whatever is going wrong in it. And once they fix it, get back in the game. And that's also what we're seeing in our donor trust reports. People will say when an organization falls down, particularly in an area like DEIA, they'll get back in the game, but they want you to fix the problem. You got to fix it. If you fix it, we'll come back. But, you know, let us know. We'll fix it. When you fixed it, we'll come back. But we don't want to hear from you if you're still dealing with people the way you have. So that's good. I just want to get people thinking that way. Let's think about the importance of institutions and let's give them a chance to fix the problems when they're when they're uh, when they come up. And let's realize that no institution is going to be perfect. No institution is going to be perfect. All right. So, listen, I wanted to ask because I know we're getting to the end of this, but I'm so fascinated by the fact that you are part of an organization, Nathan, that is into AI and helping people predict things like, what do you actually do? How does that work? I mean, there's a little techie in me too. I don't know, but I I love the futuristic kinds of things. So people know me as a a part-time futurist. So what are you doing with AI that kind of helps us better understand generosity? I mean, you know, it came from out of when I was working in, in nonprofit and fairly large scale fundraising at that point, around 175 million a year. And just like this vicious cycle, rinse and repeat. Throughout my career, we bought a lot of different models and it's like throwing spaghetti on the wall and like predicting people using very few data points. I realized was not it was not sustainable. Like we were only looking essentially at converting rich people to make gifts. Most of them are rich white men because that data is so extremely biased. And out of just sheer frustration, I decided in 2017 to learn everything I could about machine learning and deep learning, which is still very expensive at the time. And the cost has come down a lot. But since that point, ended up filing a few patents on um, predicting gratitude and, and machine learning. And really at the end of the day, what we're doing is what every for-profit has been doing for a while. The largest companies in the world are all trying to identify what are the things that you like that you want to hear more of in real time. And in a lot of ways, it's reduced a tremendous amount of bias because now instead of looking at a person just by their wealth or some demographic data, we're able to use a thousand data points and find correlations between, oh, this person bought children's apparel and a thousand other data points. Therefore, they may be, they're more likely to make a gift to this children's hospital. So it's been, we're really using the same technology that Google and Microsoft and Amazon use every day to quantify the connection between a person and an organization. So the part that we no longer see people as donors or prospects, we see them as essentially an N of one, you're a person that has a varying degree of affinity toward an organization, and that affinity changes every day. And it will either increase or decrease by the messages and the outreach that that organization has and being able to essentially assess that connection over time is it's really incredible. I mean, this is dark times in terms of the percentage of people that give, but 
it's the golden era of this idea of giving sciences where we know more about the motivations of generosity than we've ever known before. Fantastic. All right. So let me turn to you, Brian, to, to close us out. And what I want to know is what does the book have to say about a call to action? What should we be doing? Yeah, thanks. As we talked about earlier, I mean, the framework that we talk about to ra- to what we've termed uh, radical connection is, I think, now needed more than ever. Another terminology we talk about in the book is this competition for connection, as Nathan alluded earlier. So everybody in our lives, pe- our friends, family, companies, everyone around us is competing for that small amount of time. And I think the call to action in the book is on a tactical, practical level for not-for-profit leaders, development folks, board members, a reframing of potentially how to begin to think about their engagement and their their outreach strategies, uh, whether they're a, a small nonprofit, medium, or large. We think it, it's absolutely scalable. But that's to the that's to the nonprofit community. As Nathan and I have been talking to a lot of people about the book over the last few weeks, and hopefully even more so going forward. What I'm finding is just at a, on a personal level, I was at an event on Saturday night for a friend of mine, and ended up talking to two people about the book and the, just this where you started, Art. This idea of people just re- being re-inspired on generosity, on giving to nonprofits in that role. And I, I think if, if, if how to do it from a practical standpoint is what's in the book from a development standpoint, the very notion that only 49% of us are doing it right now is the second biggest thing to come out of this call to action for this book to, to re-inspire a, genera- a whole new generation of giving. You know, Nathan and I talked about in the very early days of the book, wouldn't be great to have the book end with an idea of like how to re-inspire our whole country to back what and what made us unique for so long. And quite frankly, that chapter's not written yet. So because we couldn't come up with any ideas. And so this is really an important question you're asking, because I would love your, yourself, your listeners, just really to look in the mirror, uh, each of us individually and think about how can we as individuals, organizations, etc., re-inspire a, a more generous future. And I think if we do, from the personal benefits that you talked about are to the, to the benefits that the nonprofits will be able to, you know, break through on, on, on diseases and continue to educate people. I think we'll have a much, much, my four kids will have a much brighter future than we have now. And I think that all starts with generosity. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you both for joining the show and congratulate you on your book, the generosity crisis, the case for radical connection to solve humanity's greatest challenges. And I'm with Nathan Chappell and Brian Crimmins, who over the last four or five years got together and and pumped this book out and it's now available. So I would encourage all of our listeners to consider this. Uh, Maybe it'd be a great holiday gift for you and some of your friends. Also just thank them again for, for joining the show. And believe me, I'll reach out to you. Let's plan to get together because I'm I'm always full of ideas about how to do things. So awesome. Let's let's plan to talk and stay in touch and see what we can do together as well. To all of our listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in. You can find us on all major podcast platforms, and there are about 110 additional episodes of the Heart of Giving podcast. And I know that some of them will lift you and inspire you to give also. So thanks for listening and we'll see you back here next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com.
B-E-A-N.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.